Okay, this morning we're going to look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. So you can turn the next page in your bulletin where it's printed, or uh, grab a Bible from the back if you need one, or if you have your own. Matthew 3, 1 through 12. Uh, In our series in Matthew's Gospel, we're still really at the beginning. We haven't quite uh, emerged from the story of Jesus' origins. Uh, Matthew spends a lot of time talking about where Jesus has come from. He gives a genealogy uh, way back in the beginning uh, to say something of Christ's human origins. And then he tells about Christ's miraculous conception, his divine eternal origins. And then he writes uh, about Christ's geographical origins, which we've looked at, and something about the political climate from which he originated, you know, uh, where he was an infant. <clears throat> and, um, and even though he's an adult now uh, in our passage, um, uh, we don't quite see him yet, but uh, so it'll, it'll still be a few weeks until we actually get to the formal beginning of his ministry, uh, his public ministry, which is, uh, starts in the middle of chapter 4. So but the focus of our passage uh, this morning is on this fellow, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, is, uh, he was the forerunner to Christ, you know, so he's this, uh, this final prophet, if you can say it this way, of the Old Testament period, in a sense, leading up to Christ. Uh, paving the way for the coming of Jesus. John uh, the Baptist, he was sent by God to do that. He was sent, to, sent by God to prepare people for Jesus. And he talks a lot about repentance. Uh, repentance is not the most popular topic. And the one who talks about repentance a lot is not the most popular person. And uh, <clears throat> John the Baptist was so unpopular that he was eventually killed uh, for calling the powerful people to repent, calling wrong people to repent of their sins. So, but, uh, but Jesus says about John the Baptist that no one uh, is greater than him. No one's greater than John the Baptist. So we imagine if Jesus says something like that, then uh, however unpopular his message might be, it's probably pretty important. It's important for us to consider. So we all need to talk about repentance. We need to understand what it is. Uh, and what's more, we actually need to repent. Uh, so that's our topic this morning. It might not sound like a fun topic, but uh, it, it will be good. It will be good for us. So... Uh, Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've spoken to us and revealed to us uh, that we may call you our Father when we come to you for relationship, that we may call you our Father when we pray entirely as a gift of your grace. So help us to understand and delight in this word that you've given us, even this word about repentance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan was going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Well, uh, we're not going to be able to talk about everything that's going on in this passage this morning. Uh, Sorry. Um, But uh, so John the Baptist, Matthew doesn't feel the need to mention uh, exactly who John the Baptist is. Luke points out that John is uh, Jesus' slightly older cousin, uh, relative, right? He's, he's called John the Baptist uh, because of his unique ministry of baptizing people in the Jordan River, especially. We'll, we'll talk about baptism um, more next week when we look at Jesus' baptism and sort of the distinction between what was going on with John's baptism and what we understand by Christian baptism. All that is next week when we uh, start to look at Jesus' baptism in the next passage. But the picture that we get here is uh, when, Jesus, uh, when John the Baptist is baptizing people out in the wilderness in the River Jordan, it's like when the people of Israel had come out of Egypt long before. You can read about this in the book of Exodus and in Numbers and so forth. Uh, he, uh, the people of Israel were led out of Egypt by Moses, who miraculously parted the waters of the Red Sea first, Uh, the Red Sea, to get them away from uh, the enemy who had enslaved them. And then they were led to wander in the wilderness. That's sort of the setting that we find here. It's the wilderness uh, before finally crossing the Jordan in another miraculous parting of the waters. Moses did the same thing there that had happened um, uh, at the Red Sea uh, before, uh, you know, crossing that Jordan and entering into the blessing that God had promised to his people, the promised land. Uh, where God is going to dwell with his people. So John's out in the wilderness, sort of a, a repicturing this, right? He's out in the wilderness. He's calling people to a new life with God. He's baptizing them in waters that signify repentance and signify forgiveness. And that are accompanied by the confession of your sins and so forth, right? So the people of God uh, had been expecting someone like John, actually. So as Matthew points out in uh, uh, Quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, which Jubilee read in our Old Testament reading, um, or you can read about in Malachi, uh, where he speaks similar things, speaks about the return of the prophet Elijah, right? So the coming of John the Baptist would have been highly anticipated. But, uh, but here's the thing. We always knew from the Old Testament that his message would be difficult to accept. He's highly anticipated. People were looking forward to that because he's the forerunner to the Messiah. He's paving the way for the Lord. But we always knew his message would be difficult to accept because as Isaiah said, and he's going to come and knock down mountains and he's going to fill up valleys. This is a big scale project. He's going to make rough places level. There's no more uh, serious demolition and construction project than leveling mountains and changing the entire landscape, right? So uh, that's not just meant to talk about physical geography of places, right? That's meant to signify the scope and the magnitude of what is happening when uh, you want to change human hearts spiritually. It's like leveling mountains and filling up valleys. That's how big of a deal it is. That's how difficult it is. Malachi uh, also foretold the coming of uh, John the Baptist. He talked about him in terms of as the return of the prophet Elijah. 
not as a reincarnation because the scriptures understand Elijah is still alive at God's, uh, in God's presence. Um, but, uh, so he's not like reborn in the person of John the Baptist, but someone after the fashion of John the Baptist, uh, uh, after the fashion of Elijah, after the fashion or in the spirit of Elijah, who would make uh, announcements about the judgments of the Lord and make big changes in the hearts of the people. Right, so, so John the Baptist, coming, he's coming with a message of repentance, a ministry of repentance, a baptism of repentance. And that's a sore subject for most people, uh, not just because it means change, uh, but because it implies things like right and wrong, and, it, and it, it, it applies right and wrong to us, right? The call for repentance means uh, you've been wrong. You've been wrong in big ways. You've been in rebellion and you've sinned against God. People don't like to think of themselves as bad people. People don't like to think of themselves as having been wrong about anything. It's really hard to admit when you're wrong. Uh, people, people don't want to think of themselves as sinners. So this feels like a bad message, this one of repentance. And then you add to it the fact that there's this warning, this threat, that if you don't repent, there, there are these things that are going to happen. The unquenchable fire burning up all the chaff and so forth, right? This is difficult. We hear the call to repentance as if it were a bad message. But it's a good message. It's a message given by God to bring us to his son, Jesus. In the next chapter, uh, at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is preaching the very same message, exact same words as John is here. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, in fact, we can summarize all of Jesus' teachings this way, really, under that sort of umbrella. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, with all of his teachings, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's always talking about the kingdom of God, and he's always calling people to repent. Right? And those two things are linked together, repentance and the kingdom of God. They're always linked. Jesus calls it um, the good news of the kingdom. He preaches the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew talks about it that way three times in his book. He uses that phrase. It's the gospel of the kingdom, the good news. The kingdom is good news. Right? So those things are always linked. The repentance and the good news about the kingdom are always linked. To proclaim the kingdom of God is to proclaim good news. So we're, here, uh, we're, we're called to repent because this very good thing, the kingdom of heaven, is near. And that sounds a little more like an invitation than it does a threat, doesn't it? That sounds a little more like an invitation than a threat. In fact, uh, even a warning, it doesn't have to mean a threat. Like we have a warning in passages like this. Jesus makes plenty of warnings. But it doesn't have to mean a threat as if the person who's making the warning were really menacing and mean and wanted your suffering and wanted what was bad for you. Right? Uh, so when you go to the beach, you drive past the signs, you've all seen them, uh, that warn you about tsunamis. And uh, when we drive past them, we're joking in the car uh, about the signs. You're either in, uh, we sort of change the language, right? You're in the tsunami observation zone where you'll merely be an observer to the cataclysm or you're in the tsunami participation zone where you get the full experience, right? Um, the, those signs are there. Those warnings are welcome, right? We don't think that the people who posted those signs are meanies who are out to get us. Uh, we, it would be good for us to avoid the dangers of a tsunami. Wouldn't you want warnings like that? You do. You want warnings like that. So an invitation to repent because the good kingdom is near 
and a warning that continuing without repentance leads to destruction, that whole message is good. We usually hear it as bad news, but that whole message is good. And here's the reason, here's the big reason why this message is good. Um, And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the Garden of Eden, to when humanity first sinned against God. God had created Adam and Eve, and he created them good and very good, right? And they were in right relationship with God. And then the serpent came along and tempted them to sin, and they did that. The serpent, the devil, um, we find throughout the rest of the scriptures, that's who that is, Satan. Uh, the serpent had made himself God's enemy, he made him, put himself at loggerheads with God. He made himself God's enemy, and then the serpent won humanity to his side in the war against God. We became rebels to the one true Lord. We became traitors to the one high king. And we put ourselves under the power of the prince of this world, the devil. So in this sense here, spirituality is completely binary. There's no third option, right? Uh, You're either on God's team or you're on the serpent's team. That's the way the Bible would talk about it. And sin means leaving the, the one for the other. In our sin, we've arrayed ourselves for war against God, against the good God who's only ever wanted good for us, against the God whose very being is love. We've arrayed ourselves against the God of love. So what does it mean when you stand with the serpent against love? What does it mean when you stand with the serpent against what is good, against God the almighty creator? It's not good news to do that. That's for sure. So you get language here from John the Baptist and later on, same kind of language from Jesus about this unquenchable fire. When you turn against your creator, you have no ground to stand on. When you turn against the one who is love, you implode in your self-centeredness. When you turn against the God of life, it means death. When you turn against a holy God, it means fire and disintegration of who you are and what you were made for and your relationship with God. So we all need to be warned about that. It's not a threat. We need to be warned that that's the reality for those who continue without repenting. But immediately after the first sin in the garden, when our first parents committed that first sin and joined the devil's side in his war against God, God promised to save us from that whole problem. Save us from our own rebellion. He spoke to the serpent. The first thing he said to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So because of sin, the enmity was between sinners and God. That's where the enmity was. But by the grace of God, he would drive a wedge between us and the serpent. He would create an enmity where there was none anymore. He would make us enemies with the devil, which means he'd win us back to himself. He'd win us back to his own side, right, to his own kingdom. Paul talks about this happening. Uh, he says it in Colossians 1, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And in Romans 5, it says, while we were enemies, we were enemies with God. And while that was true, Jesus reconciled us to God. Uh, it was by his death. So it isn't our repentance that makes things right between us and God. It's the sacrifice of love that Jesus makes on the cross that makes us right with God, that wins our forgiveness and our reconciliation 
and our redemption. But we rebels need to change our allegiance. You need to change your allegiance. That's what repentance is. We need to defect from the evil empire. We need to drop the weapons of our war against God. We need to become deserters. We need to become turncoats, renouncing the serpent. So that's what repentance means. We've been fighting for the wrong side. And we need to return to the good Lord and to his kingdom. And even though uh, we've been traitors and rebels, he rejoices to take us back when we do. Jesus says it a couple times. He tells these beautiful parables in uh, Luke chapter 15. Uh, several parables that are all talking about the same thing. They're, but there's this great joy in heaven when a sinner repents. Just one sinner. Great joy in heaven. God himself rejoices when a sinner repents. He'll take us back. He rejoices to do that. We had originally rebelled against him, and the penalty for such treachery is death. But God sent his son to pay the price so that we could come back. So we could come back to him. And so all of this about the serpent's war is, uh, it's indicated there in the preaching of John the Baptist when when he calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees a a brood of vipers. He's referring to that from Genesis chapter 3. It's very strong language. It's offensive language. And it... uh, It refers back to God's promise to put enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring, who's Jesus. Jesus is the woman's offspring. He's God's son. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's born of a virgin, born only of a woman. He's not the man's offspring. He's a woman's offspring. So God's promise was ultimately fulfilled when he put the enmity between the religious leaders, like the Pharisees and Sadducees here, and Jesus. And that's good news. It's good news for people who um, forsake the serpent, who want to repent and return to God through faith in Jesus. So the original word for uh, repent here means to, um, to turn the mind or to change the mind. Right? It's not just a call to behavior modification, changing some external behaviors, right? It's a call to change at the deepest spiritual level. The mind is representative of that. Um, so the Pharisees, they were the self-righteous religious people. They were, they were the most fastidiously moral people you can imagine. There's nothing wrong with them on the outside, right? But in their hearts, they're far from God, and they opposed Jesus. They opposed God in the flesh because he was merciful to sinners, and he undermined their idea of righteousness. So the Pharisees didn't just need to clean up their language or stop drinking, you know, external behavior modification stuff. They didn't need that. They needed to give up being good people, actually. Being good people who were proud of their own goodness, who felt themselves deserving and entitled because of their own goodness, who loved their own good works more than they loved God, who ultimately they pit their own goodness against the goodness of Jesus. So that's what they're called to give up. The Sadducees uh, were interested in power because they had control of the temple. And they cooperated with uh, their Roman occupiers to maintain uh, power for themselves. They used their their religion, basically, to maintain a comfortable social status for themselves to the neglect of real ministry to the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, they're two different groups. They didn't tend to get along very well. They really didn't historically. But they were perfectly happy to unite against Jesus. And their enmity with Jesus 
would culminate with him on the cross. This is the, the devil's offspring versus the offspring of the woman. And Jesus goes to the cross because of that enmity. And so when he died, his heel was bruised. When he died, his enemy was able to inflict damage points on him, big damage points. This is, it's more than just a sore foot. It's symbolic. It's more than just a sore foot. It was death, a real death on the cross. But because of his resurrection and the glory that he has at God's right hand now, the overall effect, even of his death, relatively speaking, it was like a heel wound compared to what he did to the serpent. In his death, he annihilated the power of the devil like a man stepping on the head of a snake. In the moment of Christ's death, uh, the kingdom of God triumphed over the kingdom of the serpent. These two kingdoms that have been at war since the beginning of the world, really. Because that was the moment when God's love prevailed. That was the moment when sinners and rebels were forgiven and welcomed home, when people were transferred from the domain of darkness, ripped away from the power of the devil, and planted squarely into the kingdom of God's beloved son. So when John the Baptist calls people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's proclaiming the good news that finally here's this promised king. He's come to do all this and to have victory over the serpent on our behalf. Jesus, the king, he's the very personification of the kingdom. The kingdom has come because Jesus has come. Right? He's the personification of the kingship of God, the rule of God. The way God's reign looks in this world, you just look at Jesus. His kingdom is unlike anything the world has ever known. This, this king receives traitors to himself. He receives traitors back and he pardons them even at the cost of his own life. He does that. This king rules for the sake of love. This king rules in grace and mercy for the good of his people. That's the kind of kingship we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of heaven. So the fact that sinners need to repent, that we've got to be called to repent, that's bad. That's, that's really too bad that we, we're in that position where we have to repent. But the call to repentance is very good. The call to repentance is just a call to return to this good Lord Jesus. Repentance, uh, that word, it cannot just be applied to behavior modification, external stuff. That word has no meaning whatsoever apart from relationship with Jesus Christ. Biblical repentance is turning to Jesus. It's turning to God relationally as one person turns to another person. So, I mean, a couple quotes from the Old Testament, Isaiah 44. God says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And Joel chapter 2, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. So repentance is... It's turning away from sin and rebellion against God. It's turning toward God in Christ, which is a personal matter. It's a relational matter. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart that has its, its effects in your whole life. But essentially, it's a matter of the heart. So, so turn away from things like behaviorism, from thinking that that's going to get you somewhere in life. The, the Pharisees, they were experts in behavioral modification. That has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were his worst enemies. So turn to Jesus for a relationship and be faithful to Jesus. Turn away from, uh, you know, looking for satisfaction in yourself, looking for satisfaction in your accomplishments. 
Turn to and drink from the fountain of living waters and find all your satisfaction in the triune God of love, in eternal life with him. Turn away from creating your own identity, establishing it, uh, managing your image through things like your career or things like fashion or things like social media. Turn to Jesus Christ alone to hear what he has to say about you. And find your identity in your spiritual union with him. Turn away from uh, people-pleasing as a way of life. Turn to Jesus, who accepts you unconditionally up front. Turn away from resentment of God. Turn away from suspicion toward God. And turn to Jesus, who reveals God to be good and wise and kind and gracious. Turn away from your desire for power or control and turn to the one true king and submit to him and learn from him, the embodiment of the kingdom himself, learn from Jesus what it means for a human to live in God's kingdom. Turn away from finding your righteousness in things that divide you from other people, things that divide you from other Christians, things like being right all the time or good living. Turn to Christ in his grace, by faith, for the righteousness that he provides as a gift in order to bring us together with God and with each other, to bring us together. Turn away from your ideals for the church. Turn away from your judgments about the church. Turn away from your restless, frustrated complaints about what's wrong with the church. Yeah, there's lots of stuff wrong with the church. doesn't mean you have to dwell there. Turn away from that. Turn to Jesus, who has perfected our salvation. He has done it. He has perfected our salvation. He's given us every reason to rejoice with him together in the church with thanksgiving. There's always more repentance to be made. There's always deeper repentance to be made. There's always further opportunities to turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Your repentance, your repentance will never be perfect in this life, never, never be complete. So Martin Luther uh, said in his uh, famous 95 Theses, the first, the first of them, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not just something for the beginning of the Christian life. This is for all people everywhere throughout their lives in this world. Your whole life is an opportunity to reject the devil and his war against God and to find peace with God through faith in Jesus and to live in the blessed kingdom of his love. So repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it can be hard for us to hear this call to repentance. It can be hard to believe that you you would take back rebels like us. Help us to hear this call, and help us to hear the good news of your kingdom in Jesus. Give us your Spirit's help to return to you. Give us your Spirit's help to believe that you are good and that returning to you is good. Help us to dwell in your goodness and your love as we abide in Christ and in his word. And help us to show in our repentance, in our response to you, that your call to repentance is good for everybody else as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.